welcome to Easy Big Takes, the podcast where we read you the one-star reviews of your favorite movies and more. My name's Kat. And I'm Riley. And this week, we're going to wrap up our winter horror with The Thing. And you hadn't seen it before now, right? It was kind of like with Jurassic Park where I'd seen clips of it and talked about it before. Never got around to watching it. Right. John Carpenter's The Thing, made in 1982. It's rated R. It's an hour, 49 minutes long. It was directed by John Carpenter. We all know him for making Halloween, They Live, The Fog, Bill Lancaster, who wrote the screenplay, and John W. Campbell Jr., who wrote the story. And then for the plot, in Antarctica, a helicopter pursues a sled dog to an American research station. The researchers witness as the passenger accidentally blows up the helicopter and the pilot. The man shoots at the dog and shouts at the Americans in Norwegian, but they are unable to understand him. He is shot dead in self-defense by Station Commander Gary. The American helicopter pilot R.J. McGrady and Dr. Copper leave to investigate the Norwegian base. Among the charred ruins and frozen corpses, they find the burnt corpse of a malformed humanoid, which they transfer to the American station. Their biologist, Blair, performs an autopsy on the remains and finds a normal set of human organs. Clark kennels the sled dog and it soon metamorphoses and absorbs several of the station dogs. This disturbance alerts the team and Childs uses a flamethrower to incinerate the creature. Blair autopsies the dog thing and surmises that it can perfectly imitate other organisms. Data recovered from the Norwegian base leads the Americans to a large excavation site containing a partially buried alien spacecraft, which Norris estimates has been buried for over 100,000 years and a smaller human-sized dog site. Blair grows paranoid after running a computer simulation that indicates that the creature could assimilate all life on Earth in a matter of years. The station implements controls to reduce the risk of assimilation. The remains of the malformed humanoid assimilate in isolated Bennings, but Windows interrupts the process and McGrady burns the Bennings thing. The team also imprisons Blair in a tool shed after he sabotages all the vehicles, kills remaining sled dogs, and destroys the radio to prevent escape. Copper suggests testing for infection by comparing the crew's blood against uncontaminated blood held in storage. But after learning the blood stores have been destroyed, the men lose faith in Gary's leadership and McGrady takes command. He, Windows, and Nalls find Fuse, burnt corpse, and surmise he committed suicide to avoid assimilation. Windows returns to base while McGrady and Nalls investigate McGrady's shack. During their return, Nalls abandons McGrady in a snowstorm, believing he has been assimilated after finding his torn clothes in the shack. The team debates whether to allow McGrady inside, but he breaks in and holds the group at bay with dynamite. During the encounter, Norris appears to suffer a heart attack. As Copper tends to defibrillate Norris, his chest transforms into a large mouth and bites off Copper's arms, killing him. McGrady incinerates the Norris thing, but its head detaches and attempts to escape before also being burned. McGrady hypothesizes that the Norris thing demonstrated that every part of the thing is an individual life form with its own survival instinct. He proposes testing blood samples from each survivor with a heated piece of wire and has each man restrained but is forced to kill Clark after he lunges at McGrady with a scalpel. Everyone passes the test except Palmer, whose blood recoils from the heat. 
exposed, the Palmer thing transforms, breaks free of its bonds, and affects windows, forcing Gray to incinerate them both. Giles is left on guard while the others go to test Blair, but they find that he has escaped and has been using vehicle components to assemble a small flying saucer, <laughs> which they destroy. Upon their return, Giles is mis- Upon their return, Charles is missing and the power generator is destroyed, leaving the men without heat. McGrady speculates that, with no escape left, the thing intends to return to hibernation until a rescue team arrives. McGrady, Gary, and Knowles agree that the thing cannot be allowed to escape and set explosives to destroy the station. But the Blair thing kills Gary and Knowles disappears. The Blair thing transforms into a Norse creature and breaks a detonator, but McGrady triggers the explosive with a stick of dynamite, destroying the station. Charles returns as McGrady sits by the burning remnants, saying he became lost in the storm while pursuing Blair. Exhausted and slowly freezing to death, they acknowledge the futility of their distress and share a bottle of scotch whiskey. So that's the thing. <laughs> Cass, which is Kurt Russell, who plays McGrady. Wilford Brimley, who plays Dr. Blair, which I didn't know until now. <laughs> T.K. Carter plays Knowles. David Glennon plays Palmer. Keith David plays Childs, Richard Dysart plays Dr. Carper, Charles Hollihan plays Vance Norris, Peter Maloney plays George Bennings, Richard Nasser plays Clark, Dalton Moffett plays Gary, Joel Polis plays Fuse, and Thomas G. Waits plays Windows. And then Jed plays the dog. Such <laughs> <laughs> a good boy. He is, and apparently he was, like, actually a very good animal actor, but we'll get into that. <laughs> the tagline is, anytime, anywhere, anyone. And then I have a bunch of trivia. John Carpenter has stated that of all his film, this is his personal favorite. That's fair. I, I think, I love Halloween. I love Halloween a lot, but I... I also agree this is probably one of my favorite John Carpenter films. Other than being very good, I think it inspired a lot of other things. Mm -hmm. It's been referenced in a lot of the horror movie reviews that we've done. So obviously it's long lasting and very important. Yeah, very influential. It has become a tradition in British Antarctica research stations to watch the thing as part of their midwinter feast and celebration held every June 21st. Why would you choose that? I think it's really funny <laughs> that they would do that. That is terrifying. I love it. Have you seen the people who are on their way to Antarctica and they're like in the Drake Passage? It's awful. It's all like a horribly deadly part of the sea, right? Yeah. I remember seeing a video on the boat and it's literally a wave just crashing over. It sounds awful. Yeah. To get the illusion of icy Antarctica conditions, interior sets on the Los Angeles sound stages were refrigerated down to 40 degrees Fahrenheit while it was over 100 degrees Fahrenheit outside. I'm sure that felt really nice when you first walked in. It probably felt even better to leave that day. Yeah. The film is considered a benchmark in special makeup effects. The effects were created by Rob Bodden, who was only 22 when he started the project, which I think is very impressive. That is very impressive. Especially considering, like, the lasting impact of the special effects and makeup in this movie. Like, Oh, yeah. According to John Carpenter, he takes all his failed movies pretty hard, but the film's initial negative reception disappointed him the most. Not only was it a box office bomb... But critics panned its gory effects, tone, and characters. Harbinger was particularly upset when Christian Nyby, the director of the original The Thing from Another World, publicly denounced Carpenter's version, saying, If you want blood, go to the slaughterhouse. All in all, it's a terrific commercial for J&B Scotch. Oh my god. In response to the commercial bombing of the film, the studio canceled the multi-picture deal they had with Carpenter, who noted that his career would have been different 
that the film had been successful. Not surprisingly, he was extremely relieved when the film enjoyed a rich cult success following its home video release, along with the critical reevaluation it received. I love when that happens, and a movie actually deserves it, and you're like, you can like look back at these critics and be like, y'all are stupid. Y'all were wrong and dumb. But I would love, I would take a whole class about movies that gained success because of home video release way after the fact. Just so cool. It's so cool. I love the concept of like cult classics. Mm-hmm. I-, I would also love to take a class on that. There's a lot that in recent years have kind of become cult classics too. So it's like interesting to think about what might become a cult classic in the future. Mm-hmm. Oh, so going back to the dog. Jed. The region dog in the film was named Jed. He was a half wolf, half Malamute breed. So cute. Jed was an excellent animal actor, never looking at the camera, <laughs> the dolly, or the crew members. <laughs> Jed, however, is not the dog scene in the beginning chase scene where the Norwegian is trying to shoot him. Per Carpenter's commentary, this was another dog painted to look like Jed. Painted. Somebody spray paint that dog. But I love that because, you know, with animal actors, like there's always their animals, you know, they're doing their best and it's not always perfect. But apparently Jed was like very good at his job. Like he is actually a very good animal actor. I just think it's so cute. One of the things that he was so excellent for was like not looking at the camera. It's just so funny to me. He's a professional. (laughs) He knows. Like he, like any actor would know not to look at the camera. He's in character. He knows. Yeah. He's not Jed right now. Not Jed. He's dog one. He's dog one, and he plays dog one like a champ. Plays the shit out of that role. It's fantastic. I love the dog that's just painted. (laughs) I love that. I know there's like dog dye. Like you could like dye a dog's fur. But painted is an interesting word to use. <laughs> it is. Well, especially nowadays, like there's animal friendly paint and spray yeah. paint that you could put on a dog so it doesn't hurt them. But in the 80s, I can only imagine. A dog permanently looks like Jen. <laughs> oh, well, it can't come off. That's just his stunt double now. <laughs> but he literally has a stunt double. That's so cute. Yeah, he does. <laughs> literally. Isn't that funny? Oh, my God. Unused music composed for this film was later used by Ennio Morricone and Quentin Tarantino's The Hateful Eight. Ironically, Morricone's Thang score was nominated for a Razzie for the worst score, while the score for Hateful Eight won him an Oscar. People just were being so mean about this movie. For no reason. And then turn around and I think it just shows how stupid people can be. Yeah, and like how easy it is for especially critics to get into like the hive mind. Mm-hmm. But um bum hive mindset yeah morricone is like one of the most prolific film composers ever so people were really being stupid it, i don't even know why like how can they nominate for a razzie and then turn around and go like you know what you deserve an oscar that's it's for the same freaking score yeah at around 15 minutes in when the dog wanders down a hallway and pauses outside a door a shadow can be seen of one of the men beckoning it in. John Carpenter wanted it to be mysterious which character was involved, so didn't use any of his actors to cast a shadow. Ooh. But he really wanted a mystery with who did it start with, you know? Yeah. One day after shooting a scene with a flamethrower, Kurt Russell pulled a practical joke on John Carpenter by covering his face and head with bandages and claiming he had gone burned. <laughs> Jesus. I can't imagine working on this set. It sounds like it would probably be chaos. Just all all men in the 80s fucking with each other probably the whole time. And like with a horror movie like this and all the props that were included, I bet it was just, I bet it was a lot of fun. I bet it was too, but I don't mm-hmm. know if I would enjoy being there. <laughs> oh no, as the only one, as a woman, no. no. <laughs> that for them it was really fun. <laughs> this is for the boys, I guess. This is for the boys. <laughs> 
the opening title tends to re replicate the appearance of the original Howard Hawks film. To create the effect of the title, an animation cell with the thing written on it was placed behind a smoke-filled fish tank, which was covered in a plastic garbage bag. The bag was ignited and creating the effect of the title burning onto the screen. Which is, like, damn. <laughs> like, that's a lot. Don't you just love practical effects? I know, right? Like, I, who thinks of that? At one point, there was, like, a... You could tell part of this Norwegian camp was, like, a painting as, like, the foreground, too. It was like, I love that shit. It's just so cute to me. Yeah, you can tell it's special effects, but not in a bad way. No. I think there's an art to it. I, just because it isn't real doesn't mean it's bad. Yeah, it's just the idea that somebody figured that out is so cool to begin with. Like, Star Wars, half of that shit was miniatures, like... Yes! It's insane. It's amazing. And it's a, it's a, such an art form. It is. Kurt Russell took about a year to grow the famous beard and hair McGrady Sports. Mm -hmm. And I can see why. He looks great. It, it's, I mean, the hair is amazing. Rhett from Good Mythical Morning kind of looks like Kurt Russell. With, yeah, with his hair and beard. Absolutely. I see it. I definitely see it. Phil's budget, $15 million, was substantially larger than the average horror film at the time. Friday the 13th had cost a mere $700,000, while John Carpenter original Halloween had been a, a paltry $375,000. I'll use an inflation calculator real quick to see how much that would be. Yeah, because that's, I mean, I mean, I get it for the special effect. Sorry to run the thermostat to 40 degrees inside. Yeah, that's, that's pretty expensive. I would run the bill up. In the summer? <laughs> In the summer in Los Angeles while it's over 100 degrees outside. Yeah, that would, <laughs> that would drive out the bill. <laughs> Just a little bit. Just a little. That would be a $54 million movie today. Okay, so a decent amount. Mm -hmm. So just real quick, I have to see how much 700000 would be today. That would be a $2 million movie. About. Very low budget compared to the, the thing. Yeah. The Invitation, their budget was a million dollars. That's not that's not far off from probably the budget for Halloween. That's considered low now. Yeah, a million dollars, it's nothing. Mm -hmm. Very impressive. This is my last trivia fact. And I want to post this on our Instagram just so everyone can see it. Yeah, of course. I'll post it with the episode. In 1982, before its release, Fangoria magazine had a contest. People were asked to draw the thing to see if anyone could guess what it was going to look like. Hmm. The winner won a trip to Universal Studios. Fun. The winning entry by David Mark Fay, they won because this was John Carpenter's like personal favorite of all of them. I could see why this thing looks fucking gross. And like, it, just the concept of it too, like, it's just a mesh of just awfulness, you know, <laughs> like, it's very cool. Yeah. I hope he had a good time at Universal Studios. I hope he did too. <laughs> <laughs> but if you want to look up Van Gogh the thing or contest and there's a ton of submissions, really cool. Mm -hmm. All right, let's get in. So what did you think after after seeing the whole thing? I enjoyed it because I knew I already know what it's about. Like it's at this point, if I didn't know what it was about, it would be kind of well as a film student too, not knowing what it's about. Like that's nearly impossible. Exactly. We talked about it in my history of horror class. But the thing that I liked the most about this movie was the sound design of it. Mm. Well, not the most, but it, the sound design was really cool. This wasn't written by my professor. It was written by William Whittington. Mm. But he talks about, according to John Post, who did the Foley for this movie, the alien autopsy scene required goopy sounds, which were achieved by using animal guts dropped in a bowl with raw eggs to achieve liquid quality of the decaying alien remains. Ugh. 
gross. <laughs> that is nasty. Mm -hmm. But I, I was like, yay, that one wasn't in your, your trivia, so I can say it. <laughs> that is nasty. Ooh. Gory foley is always interesting because it's like sometimes they'll use practical things like using actual like animal guts and stuff. Sometimes they just use melons. I saw that like apparently cantaloupes get used a lot for like when you're like chopping things in a movie. Like Yeah, that crunch sound, that mm -hmm. meaty crunch sound. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was funny. Like, I know Kurt Russell is like a big star and he was the main character in this movie. I just thought it was funny that he, it just says starring Kurt Russell and then it just goes into all the, the crew at the beginning. Like, it doesn't <laughs> say anybody else. It just says starring Kurt Russell that here's all the editors and stuff. <laughs> he was a, he's a big selling point. <laughs> Which, yeah, fair. He's so handsome in this movie. He is. <laughs> he looks like Rhett, so. <laughs> <laughs> he does though. I do see that. I actually do see that. I love the dog, but I knew I knew that the dog was going to have a untimely demise. If it helps, it's not even the dog at that point. It's yeah. the it's the alien. So the dog's long gone. It's not. Yeah, it's not it's not him anymore. Um not the other dog, so they had a horrible <laughs> If you if you're um if you don't like watching animals die, this is not the movie for you. <laughs> I had to skip some parts because of that. It, it gets pretty gruesome in the dog kennel. So I understand if you're sensitive about that stuff, definitely, definitely skip that part at least. Yeah. And <laughs> seeing the, the thing, the dog kennel part, especially kind of in the autopsy parts too, but in the dog kennel when they're about to like torch it, I got pretty close to when I was watching like Candyman, like I threw up watching Candyman. I almost threw up. I had to skip past what it looks like you know like right before he like hits it with the flamethrower and it's like opening that part of it it's this is not a movie for the so you're thinking you know oh it's the 80s the special effects they have to be lame this movie is quite disturbing still with the special effects there's a reason why people hail this movie as for the special effects you know you're you're saying they're laughing but it's like you know like not you but like no, you not know. me i was throwing not it. you yeah like a lot of people hate this movie because the special effects are too much for them like there's a lot of people who are like this movie was too disturbing because of the special effects and it it's really it's amazing like it's a it's amazing for the 80s for the 80s to have that kind of special effects it is it's just so much like you know it doesn't look cheap or cheesy at all like it just no. looks fucking disgusting and there was one part i don't remember what it was but like oh it was something that happened in the movie that i was like i don't even think people could do this now it was just so disturbing the choice that they went with i don't remember what it, i mean a lot of it it was like wow they could not do this now or they shouldn't do this now like it they was shouldn't because like that's my that's my fear is that they're gonna remake this movie and one either butcher it or two use CGI and it's just it's not gonna be I don't know I just don't think it's gonna be the same I don't know I don't think it could uh, capture like just how this thing looks I've heard people use this word for this movie a bunch slimy this movie yes. is so slimy and its special effects a computer could not do that a computer could like I felt like I could touch this thing that was the biggest thing for me it was just so gross if you don't like body horror no this and movie's i do not for you <laughs> yeah I, I i forgot to realize how much this movie's body horror because you're thinking like oh it's just a monster like no it's 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 very very much body horror uh, like you know i don't like the little small hole thing the trypophobia some of that was in there but it was also when it looks like a bunch of tendons crossing over but there's uh. spaces between it that's what this fucking thing looks like and also 
just you see these half-formed dog faces in it. Half-formed people. The two heads in the first one with the full sets of teeth. Splitting apart. It's revolting. It really is. And I'm not usually a big gory fan. I think this movie just might be different. I don't know. I don't know what's different. It, It seems like the gore is really just how the monster itself looks and mm-hmm. like it, what it does to things and people. But like, it's not full on running around slashing people's heads off and stuff, you know? Yeah. It's not a slasher in the same we- sense as like Halloween. Yes. Other than that, I like how like genre bendy it is, sci fi and horror. Kurt Russell does a great job. It seems like men would definitely be the ones to just be like, yeah, let's just keep bringing them inside, letting people be alone with them, like travel in threes. Travel in threes, because you can't always trust the person with you. Yeah. Can't remember exactly, but in the autopsy scene, like, I heard, like, there's no mask. Like, everyone's standing around this thing. There's no mask. There's no gloves, I don't think. It's really a nightmare. (laughs) It is. Like, you should be in full hazmat suits, guys. Come on. Like, they just, they just kept, just... Stop touching it. Stop fucking touching this thing. (laughs) Stop being alone in rooms with this thing. But I think I said this before we started recording, but Keith White, love him. Great voice. He voices the president in Rick and Morty, Dr. Facilier in Princess and the Frog, and the cat in Coraline, most importantly. That's why I thought it was so funny that it was just like starring Kurt Russell. (laughs) (laughs) And you're like, what about that guy? (laughs) There's nobody else in this movie. Yeah. The music was really fun. It was a little like kind of stereotypical sci-fi horror music, but... But it was it was fitting mm-hmm. overall i thought it was really good i understand why it's held so high and people love it so much yes it was very disturbing yes i did want to throw up but i felt the same way about candy man and that movie was good my stomach has nothing to do with whether a movie is good or not <laughs> yeah but what about you it's just a really fun horror movie mm-hmm. with amazing special effects and a very good story about you know, this this paranoia and allegories you can make about what this movie means. And we'll get into that with the critics. Yeah, I, I will say before we get into the critics, just so I can so I can get ahead of like what I think maybe to me, it just seems like the epitome of like a little bit Cold War. So you could definitely say that the original or AIDS, the original. Yeah, AIDS. Definitely. You can view it through that lens, especially with all the blood and the testing and the paranoia. Absolutely. And the original movie, the Hawks one that that was made in the 50s. So that I would consider that more about the Cold War. And with that one, and there's a person who's going to get into it. Well, there's an 80s Soviet thing, too. Was there? Yeah. Oh, they told Mr. Gorbachev to tear down that wall. Oh, okay yeah I, I you could definitely view it through that lens absolutely outside of like a specific thing it just seems like how easy it is for a group of people to turn on each other how easy it is to just distrust other people yeah but you were you were gonna say something about the old one oh so and someone's gonna get into it later but the old one is concerned more about the soviets that makes sense because there's a quote at the very end and i'll read it later i'll get into this later yeah it's a movie about general paranoia you could literally apply it to you could literally apply it to anything yeah, definitely. And and logic isn't always going to be the first thing, especially you know, for a lot of people. That's the first thing to go. That's the first <laughs> thing to go in situations <laughs> like this. But do you have anything else that you wanted to talk about before we? Um, no, because the things I do want to talk about are going to be in the critic reviews a bunch. Okay, that's fair. This first critic review is by Mark R. Leeper. They wrote this last summer on June twenty fifth, the fortieth anniversary of the film. Oh wow! Mm-hmm. So it was just this last summer, yeah. From eighty two, that makes sense didn't even think about that 40 years well this is our 40th year anniversary episode (laughs) (laughs) 
quote, My reaction to the opening of this film was different from other people's. This film is based on Who Goes There by John W. Campbell Jr. Opens with a helicopter chasing a dog across a large snowy field. Now, I generally like dogs, and with this one, my usual reaction would have been rooting for the dog. But being very familiar with the story, my reaction was, get that sucker. For that matter, the Norwegian spoken by the pilot at the beginning of the film gives away the plot, shouting that the dog isn't really a dog, it's some sort of thing imitating a dog. Of course, this was in Scandinavian, so unless you understand the language, you didn't know what he was trying to warn them about. So, like, the whole plot of the film is exposed the first few minutes. Yeah. While this was not exactly John Carpenter's breakthrough film, it came after Dark Star, it was sold on Precinct 13, and Halloween, and Escape from New York, but it may well be his best film. However, it was a commercial and critical flop at the time, and only over the years has it gained the, the stature that it has. It scores... 8.2 out of 10 on the IMDb, 83, and 83% on Rotten Tomatoes, 94% with audiences. Okay. Yeah, those, those old critics probably pull it down a little bit. Yeah, definitely. It might help one's understanding of the film if one can remember what characters had what names. But personally, I have never found anyone who could keep the characters straight. Is that perhaps to emphasize how they are all part of a protein entity with no permanent individuality? Yeah, I was getting very confused the whole time. <laughs> This is going to be fun to talk about because I don't know anybody's name. <laughs> Here's the thing. I've seen this movie several times. I still could not tell you. Besides Kurt Russell and a handful of others, I do not. I could not tell you who they are. Yeah. I couldn't tell you who does what in the movie. Blair is the only other one that I... Is that Wilford Brimley? Yes. Because <laughs> I didn't even know he was in the movie until looking at the, the cast. So Yeah. I just love, though, this is a good review, and but even someone who loves this movie can't like he like they said they they haven't even met a person who can keep all the characters straight yeah i don't think it's a huge deal it really doesn't matter if you really if you re if you really pay attention you really want to go to the characters pay attention and i'm sure you can figure it out but for how much they're yelling each other's names you'd think you'd catch on but no you think but it's a i mean there's a lot of characters that's the whole thing that might be the a big issue because there's probably too many characters to keep track of it's the guy with the platinum blonde eyebrows and then that yeah. the guy with the roller skates on and the guy with the the glasses that kind of reminds me of um what's his face which you just sent me a tiktok of him from jaws oh he's not in the movie but he has it's his literally literally i've talked about this with austin before it's their off-brand version of uh shit what's his name uh it starts with an r richard dreyfus richard dreyfus but mostly like the, the character of matt hooper he like reminded me of matt hooper a little bit yeah the off-brand version of him they got their own little jaws guy <laughs> yes i need that guy who wrote the review about the descent and called them like sigourney spice and spiky spice or whatever <laughs> yes i need him to come in and name these ones their, their spice names <laughs> I love that. Mullet spice. Mullet spice. That's good. That's gross. <laughs> I love that. Hooper spice. Hooper spice. Um, this next one talks about Jed, the dog. Jed deserves an acting award. The dog is better than Boris Karloff at appearing menacing and also mysterious. And he never looked at the camera, the dolly, or the crew, which is very professional of him. Here you have a base made up of mostly a scientist and the only one really thinking is the helicopter pilot. <laughs> Child's David's voice may be familiar since he has narrated many PBS documentaries other than, he called him Ken Russell. <laughs> uh, other than Ken Russell and Wilfred Brimley, though, there are not a lot of familiar faces, which may be why it's hard to keep the character straight. I think that, yeah, that's definitely... Um... <laughs> it's literally the three I remembered. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Wait, his name's Keith White. He called him Keith David. 
Oh, did he? Yeah. Oh, weird. I see. Okay, that's why I was asking earlier. I was like, I don't, I don't know this person's name very well, so I, I need to keep straight. Oh, wait, no, it is Keith David. We've been calling him Keith White this whole time. <laughs> Keith David. Keith <laughs> David. He gave this movie a 9 out of 10, which is really great. They list all the good things, and they kind of list, you know, kind of the silly things, or maybe things that weren't the best, how the characters are very hard to track. Yeah. And I thought it was just me. I was like, I thought it just wasn't paying enough attention, but... No, I think this is a common struggle. Seems like it, yeah. This next one is not a good uh, review. This is a... It's from the 80s, so... <laughs> yeah, it's from 1985 from Dave Kerr. John Carpenter's only official remake Powder Hawks film turns out to be his least Hawkinson effort. There's no co- cohesion within the male group at Carpenter's Antarctic Research Station when the shape-shifting monster comes in for the attack. It's every man for himself. And although the group members are played by familiar, well-defined character actors, the terse banality of the dialogue makes them all sound and seem alike. It's hard to tell who's being attacked and hard to care. Carpenter's direction is slow, dark, and stately. He seems to be aiming for an enveloping, novelistic kind of effect, but all he gets is heaviness. Not a kind review, but I do understand some of the critiques. I do understand how you could not like this movie just because the characters all blend all kind of blend together no one's really i mean us other than kurt russell you i mean everyone just it is starring kurt russell so it is starring kurt russell they probably put too much uh attention to that character not enough with the other 10 (laughs) characters yeah this is a bandwagon hater probably so i think so too i I mean 1985 you should be able to watch it and be like "Eh, i think they were wrong yeah so we'll move on to the next one. This is Scott Kane from the Atlanta Journal Constitution. Two out of five stars. Such a pity. John Carpenter is too gifted a movie maker to let nauseating special effects take over his biggest film. But that's what happened in the thing. The creature attacks his victims from the inside, causing them to erupt in stomach-churning displays, flesh and bones. Howard Hawks' 1951 The Thing is vastly superior. I get how people compare this movie to Alien. Yes, getting body horror. No one's saying how the the old one is similar is like better. Okay, so literally, like, we're, and we're gonna see this a few times. It's literally just people who grew up watching the original and then seeing the new one and just hating on it because it's the remake. They're just hating on it to hate on it because it's the remake. This looks so bad. I've literally seen people compare it. It's like literally just Frankenstein and Antarctica. I feel like I, if I watched the original, I would still like Invasion of the Body Snatchers better. Well, there's a reason why we were shown that one and not this. Exactly. So this next one, it's by Will Carey, October 27, 2020. And they said, Every October, I revisit John Carpenter's The Thing to celebrate the month of Halloween. And every year, I arrive at the same conclusion. It's one of the most effective horror films ever made. I know every scene, line, and frame by heart, but this year, the experience felt different. Like the shape-shifting monster imitating life forms. Everything about the thing looked the same, but the experience of it wasn't. Something about it resonated more deeply this time around. It tapped into something familiar, something real, and I realized that it wasn't the film that has changed, but the world. Watching the masterpiece during the pandemic brought its themes much closer to home. In 2020, the world has been held hostage by an invisible enemy. Fear, anxiety, paranoia, panic spread faster than the virus itself. Ordinary interactions suddenly were no more, and everyone seemed to be behaving in unpredictable ways. Carpenter's film was a critical and commercial failure when it first came out and was generally perceived to be out of touch with the times. It was called too bleak and depressing. Had it come out the year of COVID-19, I'm sure it would have been hailed an instant classic. The most nerve-wracking aspect about the thing has nothing to do with the creature, but how the characters react to it. 
even today's time, it's very um, applicable. Mm -hmm. The thing with that, though, is I don't know if it if people would have reacted positively. Yeah, there were movies that were like pandemic-y. There was literally a movie called Love in the Time of COVID. God. Or a TV show. I don't know. Those things weren't well-received, so I don't know how well-received this movie would be if it came out in 2020. True. And just, I feel like those times are very similar. I mean, COVID in different ways and the AIDS crisis in uh, different ways. Similar in the way of not knowing enough about it. People drinking ivermectin. People thinking that if you drank out of the same cup as somebody who might have AIDS, you could get it. The misinformation period of time had like the heightened amount of paranoia of being like, we don't know how this thing works. We don't know how it spreads. And just also like to like how differently COVID-19 people also had to go in lockdown. That was a whole thing that I that's different compared to the 80s and the AIDS crisis. So yeah, they talk about how the first few minutes of the film show the crew not really working and just coping with being stuck inside and isolated from the rest of the world, how a bunch of people would describe what it was like during COVID. So that's something comparable. Almost 40 years after it was made, the gruesome practical effects are more impressive than anything that we've seen since. But what really separates Carpenter's film from every other gore fest out there is what it says about the human psyche. Carpenter's film is about the internal conflict that arrives when paranoia penetrates the psyche. It is about what happens when suspicion disturbs the sanity of an entire group. They describe how the original film was an allegory for the Cold War. So in that one, it's an external force and more of an internal fear. That makes sense because that last person was complaining about how the thing is an internal thing. And in the old one, it wasn't. This one, it's something that can get inside, like AIDS. Definitely. Okay. Definitely. Okay. The source of paranoia changed again for the 1982 version. Carpenter's faithful adaptation of the source material mirrored the HIV ep epidemic of the early 80s. Based on the reviews that were written at the time, I don't think a lot of audience members and critics picked up on the allegory. The Thing did, after all, come out two weeks after Steven Spielberg's feel-good blockbuster, E.T. the Extraterrestrial. Still under the heartwarming spell of that film, people weren't quite ready to embrace the idea of a virus-like parasite disrupting everyday life. That's fair. That's a good context to put this in. Of why it might have like that that definitely is a contributing factor to why it didn't have as much commercial success and like i was saying with like the covid aspect of it i feel like people would probably react the same way where they might not pick up on it being an allegory for covid if it were to come out around these times clearly same exact thing happened in the 80s like they didn't pick up on it being like maybe an allegory for hiv talking about something deeper you know other than not wanting to accept that aliens could be mean yeah exactly <laughs> I do want to note, though, John Carver himself said he did not specifically write or direct this movie with the AIDS epidemic in mind. Yeah. The whole premise of paranoia, fear, and all of that, that was the main thing, but that could be fit into so many different things, and I think that's why it's so good. It's, like, it's really hard not to read it that way. Yeah, especially, like, needing that blood proof of it. Exactly. Viewing the film today, I doubt anyone would miss the pandemic allegory at the heart of Carpenter's reimagining. One of the things that terrified everyone when we first started learning about the spread of the virus is the fact that you could have absolutely no symptoms. The discovery of asymptomatic carriers made the threat invisible to the naked eye, and this is exactly why Carpenter's version of the thing is so immortal. That's a really good point. Like, I didn't even think about the asymptomatic carriers of it. The thing taps into a primal fear, the fear of the unknown, the hidden true nature of the person standing next to you. We walk around in crowds, and yet we know so little about the people around us. In the 1950s, people were afraid of communists infiltrating the population. Today, the fear could collapse onto another group of individuals depending on where and when you watch the film. The person next to you could be a white supremacist, a religious fanatic, a sexual predator. You would never know. 
The thing could be an alien, a disease, an ideology, or anything that can spread silently without detection. And this makes it both literally and figuratively universal. And I love this. I'm really glad I came across this one because it really just nails what this movie could view it in so many different ways. You could apply it to almost anything, like they just said. Mm-hmm. And let's go on to move to audience reviews. This one's a 10 out of 10. Couldn't be better. One of history's greatest films. This was written in 2021. I remember being encouraged to watch this in my mid-teens. Naturally, being a teen, I was reluctant to give anything from the 80s a try as I felt it to be a long-gone ancient era. <laughs> I feel like anyone older than this person just wants to punch the screen. There's punch in the air right now. <laughs> I was pleasantly surprised. The practical effects were a very welcome change to the CGI I was used to. They were done so well that I was at no point removed from the illusion. To this day, they're still the best I've seen. It's proof that if done right, practical effects such as animatronics will always beat out CGI. The movie is fantastic in every way. Kurt Russell is such a good actor that I'd have to class him as one of my favorites. Carpenter and Russell were a tour de force in the 80s, creating both The Thing and Escape from New York. Special effects aren't used nearly as often as they should nowadays. Practical ones. Yeah, yeah, practical effects. This next one's a 1 out of 10. It says blah. <laughs> Starting in 2004. An ultimately bland, dull, and pointless exercise. As slow-moving as the big chill, John Carver's version of Campbell's classic, Who Goes There, is more faithful to the monster, but ultimately as thrilling as a term paper. While the Howard Hawks film rewrote the monster into a simple, maraudering, though intelligent being, at least that film built a sense of menace and a hurling momentum to its story. Carpenter's version is slow, talky, dull, and punctuated only by over-the-top silliness that shows his corral obsession with gore puppets. The paranoia of people who may not be who they seem plays much better in Invasion of the Body Snatchers or Planet of the Vampires or even in Campbell's own story. This version is simply so slow, the characters so stilted, and the story so jumping and plotting that the final act of this film is a relief, not an experience. I think that them saying that the ending of the film is a relief, not an ex- to this person, it seems like it's a relief that it's over. I find it also as a relief, not in that way. Like, a, oh, my God, I can relax. <laughs> I mean, Invasion of the Body Snatchers is good. I've never fucking heard of Planet of the Vampires. It sounds terrible. I kind of look into it just to see. It looks goofy. It looks like a, a fun time. It's literally outer space vampires. <laughs> oh my god. This next one's a five star from Letterboxd. It says, A bit of a downer to wash this before embarking on a trip to Antarctica with my boys tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> it's like when they watch it for their... The researchers. Yeah, researchers in actual Antarctica watching it for their little celebration. This next one's a four out of stars from Letterboxd. And it says, Puppets and Fire, my favorite things. Extremely, extremely slimy, though. Gotta be one of the slimiest movies. It's <laughs> from yesterday. It is from yesterday. <laughs> That's hilarious. Slimy. I agree. Slimy. Very slimy. Three and a half stars from yesterday. It says, What the dog doing? <laughs> what is the dog doing? What is the dog doing? Oh my gosh. This next one is a 1 out of 10 from IMDb. It's written in 2001. I've only seen one of the other films that affected me as badly and as permanently. Pasolini's Salo. There, the film was revolting for a reason. Here is just revolting, badly written, and badly acted. Nothing but pure shock and gore and the most repulsive special effects I've ever seen. No story, stupid characters, and patently ridiculous. There are ways to be frightened frightened but this is about as entertaining as mutilating herself i swore when i saw it back at its release that if john carpenter had been in the lobby of the theater 
I would have punched him for making me feel so thoroughly disgusted. <laughs> that still holds true. Same. <laughs> Whatever else good he may have done, I've never been able to have any respect for Carpenter after seeing this. He has talent beyond doubt, but this film also shows that he has a heart of pure schlock. <laughs> I truly hate this movie, and I wish I had never seen it. And I also would love to punch John Carpenter in the face, but <laughs> I liked, liked it. it. <laughs> yeah. I under I'm not going to say this person is wrong for feeling this way. It is. I get it. I don't agree that's badly written or badly acted but no it's just it's just fucking disgusting i don't blame them for being yeah disgusted with the movie itself yeah this is a one out of ten from indb says juvenile b movie it's written 2018 sorry juvenile b movie i like glanced at the title earlier and i was like my brain just went Judy b jones (laughs) (laughs) and the big stupid bus And they said, very slow and talky. Acting is bad. You know acting is bad when actors stand around every time someone says something, they stare at each other. (laughs) The whole film relies solely on the few scenes with the transformation of the alien creature, which is too gross to be scary. Why wouldn't an alien travel to Earth just to be buried under ice for 100,000 years and turn into grotesque monsters that are good for nothing? (laughs) Officially to be badly made, this movie is meaningless. Stand around and every time someone says things says something they stare at each other you mean how listening works <laughs> you want them to just talk over each other this isn't jaws <laughs> they're just gonna stare, shout over each other i think maybe they're talking about the unnatural long pauses after someone says something mildly important maybe because i know what they're talking about because i've seen it in other movies i wouldn't say it happens in this movie Mm-mm. but also that's just how conversations work exactly exactly that's how listening works yeah this one's a two out of ten stars intolerant themes 2022 i knew this movie was considered a classic so i decided to give it a chance but as i began to watch i realized how intolerant and cruel the people were of the poor creature when we first see the creature being examined by the crew they appear to be disgusted and in shock why is it because it looks different or is it (laughs) ugly according to the media and societal standards so what message does it send to viewers? The torches shoot something that we don't understand or consider to be ugly. One would argue that the creature posed a threat to the crew members as it had a taste for human flesh. But does that mean we should kill an apex person that would also eat humans in the wild? Um, I don't know if this person's being serious or not. I think they're, you know, they're being sarcastic. That's what I thought. I think they're serious, and this is the only thing they could come up with this way they they didn't like it. A couple things. If they are being serious, nobody looks like this thing. That's the whole thing. I I can confidently say that. It's made up of a thousand different alien things, and, like, it doesn't doesn't look like... Anything. This is such a dumb take. <laughs> I thought it was be. I thought it was just sarcasm. Like this is beyond stupid. The last part about like, what if all apex predators were like, would we kill? All- no, they live in their area. We live in our area. That's how we control that. These things are just everywhere. That's the whole thing. It's not like a tiger yeah. can turn into you. I'm not even going. I'm, I don't even want to partake in this conversation. It's so I do. stupid. It's such a stupid, stupid thing. I do. <laughs> it's so funny. I hope they're being serious because that's funny. It's hilarious. Next one's four and a half stars. Obsessed with Dr. Copper's nose ring and McGrady's fashion forward decision to not only pack a cowboy hat for his research trip to Antarctica, but to wear it turned sideways like a 90s cool kid. I was thinking that the whole time, but then I saw that the <laughs> strap was like in the correct place. Uh-huh. So stupid. I don't remember the guy's nose ring. I'm going to have to go back and see that. Maybe I do not remember that. I feel like that's something I would have noticed, though. I don't remember seeing that. This next one's one out of 10 stars for in 2020. I must have been watching another movie. <laughs> 
<laughs> Must have been watching another movie. Judging by all the nine and ten star reviews, as a fan of the original classic, A Thing from Another World, directed by Christian Nyby, Howard Hawks, the outstanding cast, and the superb fast-paced screenplay by Howard Hawks, Charles Letter, and Ben Hetch, I decided to try the remake. I wish I hadn't. The characters were emotionally stunted, two-dimensional stereotypes, and the dialogue consisted mostly of insults, profanity, and grunts. Perhaps the gore was supposed to substitute for dialogue, and the shock value was intended to take place of actual value, but none of it worked for me. I found all of it vulgar, violent, bloody, bore. Same complaints, like, they don't like the special effects, and they don't like the characters. I'm not gonna sit around and say that the characters are super deep or anything. I'm not, I'm not gonna defend that. I get that, but I don't think the intention of the movie was for us to get to know them as people. Yeah. This next one's four and a half stars, ran yesterday. Disgusting and visceral to watch, John Carpenter perfectly creates an atmosphere of tension and paranoia that he breaks up with some of the most gruesome, violent, alien body horror scenes I've ever seen. Loved every minute of it, even when I wanted to look away. All right, that's how I feel. This is five stars. <laughs> Rin yesterday. Watched this at a Halloween party with my in my friend's basement. I was only half paying attention because while I was trying to watch it, three different friendships ended very abruptly and harshly, leading to nearly half the room crying or having a breakdown while a girl threw up with her mask still on and I saw the vomit leak out from under it. <gasps> Still, despite only watching about half this movie and my friend group falling apart during the film, the thing that sticks with me most that night is the scene where the thing tries to scream, the way it looks up at them blankly with this disgusting arm being the only thing that differentiates it from a man, just howling to the cold night. Sounds no vocal cords could create coming from a man the crew once knew. Jesus. I love this one because there's so much going on in it. I love those. I love when somebody tells me a little story while telling me if they liked a movie or not. Their friend group is literally break falling apart while they're watching this movie, which is such a funny little parallel to the movie itself. Exactly. How fitting. <laughs> Throwing up with your mask on. Oh, I've sneezed in a mask before. I can't even imagine. How do you do that? You know you're about to vomit. Take it off. I love these, but I also hate them because I want to know more. I want to know why. Why right now? Why the three of y'all? Like, what happened? Come on. Overshare. Come on. I just love that they were paying attention while <laughs> the room was just breaking down. Yeah, that is that is fucking hilarious. This is the last one. This is a 10 out of 10 from INDB. I wish it this film. 10 out of 10. John Carpenter is the thing, hands down, the best horror film ever made. Not only that, but it is also one of my personal favorite films of all time. What makes the movie so great? It's hard to put my finger on it. Everything just seems to work in the thing. It's one of the rare occasions where everything just seems to fall in place. The film is even superior to Alien in creating a type of moody, atmospheric hell. The fact that it's not only about the gore, which is wonderful, by the way, <laughs> but it is, all, it is able to create a paranoia that is unmatched in films. A truly wonderful film that is worshipped by all horror buffs, anyone who has good taste in films. Yeah. Um, I love how they went. The special effects are wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen CGI that's worse than that. No kidding. Yeah. Uh, that's all I wanted to say. Do you have anything else to say? All right. What would you rate it? I would give this movie a seven and a half out of 10. Okay. This is one of my favorite movies. One of my favorite horror movies, at least. Mm -hmm. I'm give it a nine out of 10. Okay. That's fair. It's not perfect, you know. Mm -hmm. I take off just a few points because I wanted to throw up. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Is there anything else you want to add before we wrap it up? I think I've said everything. Okay. So if you want to give us any feedback or you want to suggest any themes or movies for us to do in the future, you can DM us on Instagram at Easy Bake Takes. We also have a TikTok at Easy Bake Takes. All of the transcripts for our episodes are on our website, EasyBake Takes Podcast.com. 
gmail.com. We have a Letterboxd account where we post overviews of our reviews of each episode if you want to follow us on there. Don't forget to rate, review, follow wherever you listen because that helps us out a lot. And if you have a friend that loves movies and you think they might like our podcast, be sure to share it with them. And thank you so much for listening. My name is Kat. And I'm Riley. This has been Easy Big Takes. Easy watching out there. Bye. Bye.